0: You're now listening to Hack and Grow Rich with Shaheen Shayen and his co-host, Bart Baggett, where we discuss hacking your way to
1: success and the unconventional paths to unreasonable success with the people who've been there. And now, the author of Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult, Shaheen Shayen
0: All right. So my name is Shaheen Shayan. I am a author and entrepreneur. I made my start in the early 1990s, where I left home as a teenager, uh, left all my friends, family, everything, and basically went out to seek my fame and fortune, ended up developing uh, and inventing a super drug uh, that became one of the leading designer drugs, all natural, all legal of the time. Company created over a billion dollars of revenue. Uh, I had hundreds of employees, product in close to thirty thousand plus stores, and I did it all in my teenage years uh, without any formal education. I left school.
1: That's not a bad intro to get things going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's uh, there's some stuff we want to. Um, there. So I'm intrigued. So what what. When you left home, you know, obviously it was just an intro. It's just, yeah, I left home. I left my friends, left my family, just off to do this thing. What was your drive, thought processes, motivations? What what shifted you away from that that point and made you go down the route you went down?
0: Great question. So to understand that, we got to go back a little bit in time. Uh, to Iran, where I was born. Iran had a revolution. We left Iran as refugees. Moving to the United States, we were political refugees. Uh, My parents were Iranian Jews, and we were solid middle class, upper middle class in Iran. Moving to the United States, I didn't speak a word of English. And very quickly, we realized that we were poor, lower, lower class and what we realized was that we had to buy some property, some real estate. So my dad, and I was just a child, I was you know, about five years old. My dad managed to scrape together enough money working day and night. My mom worked day and night. Uh, my dad worked at pizza shops and laundries and whatever he had to do. And he got some money together, borrowed some money, and we bought a house In a part of town that was not so favorable at that time. But after we bought this property, it became gentrified. We had Reaganomics, trickle down economics. There was a real estate boom, and the area started becoming super gentrified.
1: Whereabouts is this in the States?
0: In Los Angeles, in a place called. called, Yeah, in a little enclave called Pacific Palisades, which now is. 20, $30 million homes. It's a very fancy place. Well, I started to look around me being this poor Iranian kid. I had no, uh, you know, we never bought clothes. I had to wait for somebody to leave clothes at the laundry and not claim them. And that would be what we would wear to school. I never, we never ate at restaurants. We never did any of that stuff. We never bought stuff. Everything went to the house and to just survival. And I remember looking around me and I saw guys with Porsches and the beautiful girlfriends and all the fancy trappings of of wealth. And I started to think to myself, man, I want that. And so by the time I was 15 years old, I went to my parents and I said, hey, uh, I want that. I don't want this. Like, you guys work all the time. I don't want to work. They were like, well, uh, you know, they giggled. And I said, how do I get that? How do I sign up for that? Where do do I sign? And they said, you know, Shani, you have to become a doctor. It is the only way for immigrants. The pinnacle of success is to become a doctor. Second to that is only a lawyer. And that's the only two options. So my folks pointed me to this dude across the street. They said, go talk to Mr. Tehrani. He's so rich. He's great. He's doctor. And so I I walked over there to the dude's house and I talked to him for a few minutes and dude was fucking miserable. I looked at this guy. He was fat and bald. I mean, the guy must have been all of 40 and he was fat and bald. I looked at the wife. The wife was fat and bald. I looked at the kids. They were fat and bald. Everybody was hating everybody. Miserable. He didn't own his house. The bank owned his house. He didn't own his car. The bank owned the car. And he would wake up at 5 a.m. hating life, going into a job that he hated, coming home to a family that he were all miserable because they were all working way too many hours, fingers to the bone. Everybody was stressed. Any day something could go wrong and the house could be uh, foreclosed. Everything could be going wrong for these people. And I thought, dude, if this is the pinnacle of success, I'm out. So my parents didn't have a better plan. It was all they
1: knew. And, and, and I'm also guessing that when you see this guy, he's not one of the people who's got a Porsche to the drive, for starters.
0: No, he had a Mercedes. He had a late model Mercedes. The wife had a Mercedes. They had all the stuff. Like he mm. had the Rolex watch. And I was like, oh, my God. And he let me wear it. And I was like, you know, just for a second. And I was like, wow, look at this thing. Amazing. But he was fucking miserable. And I knew at a very early age that I didn't want that. I wanted to be the guy driving down the the coast highway, driving down the coast in the Porsche with the top down, with a beautiful girl sitting next to me and not a care in the world. That's who I wanted to be. But there was no path to that. So I, yet, yet. So I left home and anybody who knows one, when you do that and you have no money, no resources, no friends, the first thing you got to think about is shelter. So very quickly, I I was slept on the beach for the first little bit of time. I I figured out, uh, I slept in abandoned buildings, but I figured out that if you made friends with real estate brokers, and remember, there was a big building boom in LA at the time, that you could get that code to the lockbox. They would eventually give it to you. And the lockbox enabled you to come into that unit to view it during regular hours. But there was nothing preventing me from sneaking in at night crashing in these luxury apartment buildings. Sometimes they didn't have power. Sometimes they didn't have water. That was fine. I'd throw down a sleeping bag. I would sleep there. And I'd tell myself, you know what, one day, this is going to be my place. And then I'd I'd get up in the morning and I would leave before anybody would come. So I figured out shelter, food, I would hang out at the community college, I could uh, eat and they had a gym. So you know, I could shower and do all my stuff there. And that was how I got by, and I managed to get myself a mentor, a very unique guy. I write about him in my book that's coming up for, uh, I know it's audio, but I'm, I'm showing the book right now. It's called Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. It's available on Amazon, Audible, wherever books are found. So check it out if you guys want to hear more about my story.
1: There were some crazy times that happened,
0: but I got I'll, a mentor. I'll
1: put, I'll put a link to the book in the show notes as well, so um, if anyone's listening to this, dive into the uh- into the thing and we'll get them there, obviously.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So I got a mentor, this guy mentored me. I got into the electronic music scene and I quickly realized that there were only one type of people making money at these events. These were big raves. They were happening in big warehouses, tens of thousands of people, but everybody was broke. The party promoters broke. They'd be running out before the party ended. So they didn't have to pay everybody. The, uh, uh, people who owned the buildings usually never got paid. The DJs, nobody cared in those days about people who played other people's music, so DJs would always get stiff. But there'd always be these guys hanging out at the door. They'd be wearing nice clothes. They'd they'd have beautiful women around them. They'd have all the the trappings of wealth, the fancy cars, all those great things. And I would think to myself, man, they're the guys making the money. And I remembered at the time going and talking to some of them and just seeing how well they were. They would be buying everybody drinks, buying everybody meals. They'd be doing so well. And I thought to myself, man, that's it. I'll do that. Let me become a drug dealer. Now, rewind back when we came to this country and I was still in my adolescence. Now, this, this time at the party, I'm in my teens. In my adolescence, I learned a very good lesson. And I'll tell you what it was, um, Andrew the lesson was that I was really fucking bad at crime. As an adolescent, I started my criminal career because I thought to myself, man, I need to find a way to fit in. I'd get my ass kicked every day because I was Iranian. I'd come to school. I used to think what happens at school is you get your ass kicked. Like It was like first grade, second grade, get your ass kicked. Math, science, get your ass kicked again. I thought that's what would happen because I didn't speak English very well. I was nerdy. My clothes were two sizes too big for me because we'd be getting everybody's second clothes. And people just didn't like us You know, in those days because we were Iranian. It was Iran-Contra. There was a lot of prejudice. We got called every name in the book. And then just we were the school's kicking bag and punching bag. So I decided I was going to create a gang and I gathered up all the misfits, all the people that didn't belong, all the weirdos. There was one kid that was disabled. There was another kid that was, uh, you know, didn't speak English. He, you know, his parents just came from Mexico. There were some Middle Eastern kids like myself. We all had something major that society deemed wrong with us. And what we would do is we would go to the liquor store, and we had a cute little Greek kid. He was a little person, or back then we would call him the midget. And he would walk in and he was so cute. Everybody would fawn over him and he would wear baggy clothes. And while we created a distraction, we would spill something, do something crazy. He would quickly purloin all the nudie magazines. Back then, porn was found in nudie magazines for uh, young people who don't understand what life was like before the internet. (laughs) So so many men had to steal pornography from their father's uh, drawers. Oh,
1: normally found under bushes in the, uh, <laughs> in, the, um, in the in the in the parks as well. That for some reason. Oh my it.
0: God, that's so disgusting. Because back then you wouldn't think about why they're under the bushes, and now we clearly oh, yeah, don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But we digress. Mm. So we would take the the playboys, the penthouse magazines, those kinds of things. We would take the little bottles of liquor because they would fit in this thing. Cigarettes, gum, candy, anything we could sell. And then we would sell it at school. And very quickly, people stopped beating us up because we were the suppliers of what all these kids needed. The majority of them trust fund kids who just didn't care much about anybody but themselves. They were handed everything in life. I didn't understand. I, I, at some stage, befriended one of these trust fund kids. And I remember going to a place and not understanding what was happening. He said, oh, you know, my dad left a credit card for us. And you can just get what you want. And I said, what? He said, yeah, yeah. Is this just, I said, what the fuck is this? He said, this is a menu. He says, I said, wait a second. Hold on. Let's rewind here. I can get anything I want on this list. And that guy over there is going to bring it to me. And I can get the hamburger and the pizza? And he said, yeah, yeah, whatever. Just throw it on the card. And I thought, fuck, man. My, my, I, would, I would want McDonald's. And my mom would say, what do you mean McDonald's? Come home, I make it for you. And she would take two pieces of Wonder Bread and like a big thing of frozen meat and stick it right in the middle. And she'd go, here you go, McDonald's. And I'd be like, but it's not a Happy Meal. I want the toy. And she'd be like, here is a toy. Enjoy, what do you mean? We never ate out. So yeah. at this point, I'm being exposed to this stuff because now we're becoming popular because now I'm supplying everybody. But the thing that I learned Andrew, my adolescence was that I was really fucking bad at crime. We would always get caught. Very good at making money. Terrible at crime. I was just thinking to myself, I was like, man, last time we did this, we got caught. This time we did this, we were caught. We were constantly being caught. So now, fast forward, I am at this club. And I'm thinking, that's what I should do. I should become a drug dealer. And then like a ton of bricks, it hit me in the head. Dude, you are bad at crime. You, sir, should not be doing crime. And I thought, you know what? What if? What if? And this was the big moment idea. I could create a legal version that was legal, that was natural, that didn't cause any side effects, that was made with herbs that I could sell anywhere. I could make a lot of money. Supply and demand. I was at the right place at the right time. The biggest party drug of the 1990s, arguably, was ecstasy, MDMA, and the supply of it, because most of it was made in England and Holland, and the supply of E coming into the United States had dried up with the just say no campaign of Nancy Reagan, and the the government was really cracking down, and the Americans couldn't quite figure out how to make the stuff in volume to supply the demand. So when the supply got shut down, all these drug dealers had dwindling supply and increasing demand as the rave scene blew up. I was Mm. at the right place at the right time. And I remember I managed to get myself a girlfriend. I don't know how I was broke, didn't have a place to live. And her dad was like some stuffy, you know, accountant, superintendent, something like that. And he would leave through the front door in his three-piece suit and his like new car, whatever, to go to work, and she would sneak me in through the back. The second dude would leave, and we would be cooking up prototypes in her kitchen. I would be testing them on all the teens in the neighborhood until one day I got a formula that worked, and I decided to take it to the club, and I remember going to the club to the biggest drug dealer of that time. This guy had tattoos on his face, which meant something very different in the 1990s. Now, if you got tattoos in your face, they call you Post Malone. Back then, it, you you were not a normal person in society for having tattoos on your face, I'm sure as you know, in our era. And he looked at me and was like, what the fuck do you want with me? And I said, look, man, I got this and I made my pitch. And he said, are you crazy? You want me to sell this? And I, in those days... I didn't have the money to buy the machine. It was like $200 to buy the machine that would put the herbs in the capsules. So me and the girlfriend rolled them with honey into little handmade balls that kind of looked like pills. They didn't even look like pills. So I had all these baggies filled with this like goo filled stuff that I was uh, trying to have this mega drug dealer sell. And he told me, he's like, fuck off, kid. I don't have time for this. You know, I'll kill you, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, no, man, you know, you got to sell this stuff. And I wasn't moving. I was looking at my feet, thinking to myself, dude, this is the biggest mistake of your life. You're not fucking around anymore. This guy's not fucking around. He he had the three little things on his face. I don't know, like killed someone in jail, got killed, something, he did some bad stuff. So I was like, man, I, I should just leave now. But I looked at my feet and my feet were glued. My feet were not moving. And I was just staring at this guy in, in the face. And there was one part of me that was like, what the fuck are you doing? And another part of me that's like, don't move, don't move. And in that moment, again, right time, right place, two customers came up to him and I saw them handing him cash. And this guy just couldn't resist like the cash is in his hand now, but he doesn't have anything to give them. So he motions over to me, one of the bodyguards come over, grabs him the entire backpack and he goes, come back in an hour, better not be fucking with him. Now, this, Andrew, was the longest hour of my life. I was sweating bullets. My palms were sweaty. I was thinking to myself, dude, I'll I'll wash his car every day. I will shine his shoes. I will do whatever it takes for this man not to kill me, anything to stay alive. And an hour passed, and he motioned me to come forward completely motionless, uh, emotionless, I should say. And as I looked at his face, I didn't know if this guy wanted to kill me or, or kiss me. I didn't know. And I remember him leaning over and the most uncomfortable few minutes of silence. And then he reaches over and he says, kid, when can you get me more? He, he loved it. The party was on fire. Everybody was loving it. It worked. And now he had a supply and a path towards legitimization. And it, Changed from one guy to a thousand guys to ten thousand guys to distribution all over the world, and a lot of these drug dealers became legitimized. They gained territories. We gave them. Uh, uh, we broke off territories, all all different states, even countries. We went all over the world. Then we were in record stores and music stores and bookstores and vitamin shops, and we were all over the world. And I remember distinctly. I was still in my teenage years and we had now broken uh, uh, several records and I had a collection of exotic cars. I slept maybe one, two hours a night. I didn't sleep much because I was always working. I had factories all over the world producing pills as quickly as we could make them, producing them for $0.25, cents, reselling them for $20 a piece, mostly cash. It would not be uncommon for me to have duffel bags stuffed with cash in my office all day. And I remember having fallen asleep in the parking lot in one of my Lamborghinis, brand new Lamborghinis, and uh, drooling on the passenger seat, cause my head was kind of bumped up. There isn't much space in those things and, and waking up, not a good look to drool on the seat of those old Lamborghinis, just not good. And I remember, uh, you know, uh, stumbling into my office, mind you at this time I had over 200 employees. We had 30 plus offices. I walked in and my secretary at that time was ghost faced. She was pale and there were people all around. There was people in the cars, news crews everywhere. I said, what happened? Surely something bad has happened. And she said, well, you know, Shaheen, the news just broke that we have broken a billion dollars in revenue. Sam Donaldson, the Nightline reporter, the great Nightline reporter was outside waiting to interview me. There were all the reporters and paparazzi and and things were going crazy. And I remember the thought that came to my mind. I had two thoughts. One is a good lesson for your audience. Lesson number one uh, was that I didn't know how much a fucking billion dollars was. Would be a good (laughs) thing to know. Did not know. Did not understand technically was it a thousand million, a hundred million, a British billion. I didn't know what it was.
1: I was just going to say it's different where you go anyway. So even we can't agree what a billion is. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Secondly, I realized that I needed to get an accountant, that that was probably something I should do at this point. And I very quickly, and this is the lesson I learned, is that accounts are not the guys that count the stacks of cash inside duffel bags that are piled up in your office. That is not what they do. So very important lesson for anybody thinking of getting into this business. And from there, it was a wild ride. I had the uh, mafia try to get involved in my business. I write about that in my book, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. We had uh, a lot of turmoil with the government, but eventually they started banning the ingredients and banning the products. And I sold my interest in it and moved on. And I moved on to inventing digital vaporization. I patented that technology. Uh, was the founder of what now is all these vapes and digital cigarettes that are out there, and for and that company went public eventually. And from there, I went on to looking at the Amazon space, which is what I do now, is teach people how to create predictable recurring revenue streams and eventually quit their jobs and focus on one of the most promising opportunities of our time, which is
1: selling on Amazon. Mm, Absolutely. Um, Thank you for that. Um, I had loads of questions I want to throw in, but you're in your flow and I didn't want to. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) let's go. Um, so I just want to go back and pick up on a few things so I know, I know obviously you've going to go into a lot more detail in your book but just for those that um, people have not read it yet. Um, you mentioned the mentor that you, um, you got but didn't 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 hear much about him sort of thing so I'm intrigued to know a bit more about him how you found that mentor and why you suddenly thought ah he's he's the person that gonna gonna help me and why did he help you. Yeah
0: this was an interesting character. The guy's name was Ed Lawson. I write about him. His name was uh, synonymous with being the California Walkman. He was a civil rights activist, came up in the 1960s in the East Coast, and very quickly learned that he was interested in altered states of consciousness, got involved in all types of things, uh, LSD and psychedelics and those kinds of things during the civil rights movement of the 1960s and, and late 50s and pretty soon moved to California. When he moved to California, he realized that he was being discriminated against on the basis of his race. He was a black man, uh, long dreads, uh, very unusual character. And he decided that he was not going to take it anywhere. This is before Black Lives Matters, before social media, before any of this stuff. And he decided to go out. And when he was harassed, he would let them arrest him. Uh, he wouldn't willingly try to get arrested, but he would let them arrest him. And then he'd take him to court. And he won against uh, several police departments all the way to the Supreme Court without an attorney. uh, uh Uh, not legally educated man, representing himself and changing the system from within, changing laws that are still in place today. Just a single guy who had no formal education in law. And he did this and he became world famous for what he did. And there's case law based on him for that. And when I met him, he was in his 40s. Uh, maybe 50s. It was hard to tell how old he was. And his interest was in mentoring the next generation of people to impact other people's lives. And so I managed to convince him to mentor me. I was at that time uh, a lost soul. I didn't have uh, any idea of what I was going to do, just that where I was going wasn't great. And he really lifted the veil from in front of my eyes and showed me what I was capable of, which is an, an extraordinary thing. I really he was my first great mentor and I really don't know where I would be without him. So I'm eternally
1: grateful to him. I mean, do you know, because I'm, I'm presuming that you met him after you'd left home, but obviously yeah. before you'd got the idea about the, uh, the legal drug. So has he ever told you what it was he saw in you? That made because you, know, you just described yourself I don't know where I'm going I've got no direction I'm a loser I've got no blah 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 what does he spot it's a else? good
0: it's a good question well he's now dead he's very dead he died some years back um, and his way his method was that he did not want you to rely on him he did not believe in gurus he did not believe in being a crutch in anybody's life his goal as as many of my mentors was that i will give you the tools for you to empower yourself but it's done through your own power and when i give you those tools and i feel that you're ready my job is done the rest is up to you i can't force your hand i can't push you to do what's right and with me that's what he did he gave me the tools and then he stepped aside so i didn't see him you know, he mysteriously, just as mysteriously as he showed up, he disappeared. And I only saw him a couple of times after that. And I certainly didn't ask him that, but it'd be interesting to know what he, what he thought about me. I mean, look, I was, I was hungry, literally and figuratively. I was willing to do whatever it took to succeed. And I was not going to take no for an answer. And for somebody who has no money, who's a teenager, who has no education, I mean, look, I dropped out in ninth grade, before ninth grade, I really just have a grade school education. So, but I was willing to read, I was willing to educate myself, I was willing to ask questions, follow my fascination, find exactly the tools that I needed, and sharpen them and for the other stuff, hire people even though I didn't have money, I was able to influence people. And that was one of the biggest lessons he taught me was that the tool of influence, if you sharpen that tool, it's more important than money, more valuable than gold. It's, it's the ability to get people around you to do what you want for your benefit and theirs. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I, what I learned from him. And I, I suspect in those days, like everybody else, and he was a very in-tune person, he could look into your eyes and you felt like he was peering into your soul, like this guy knew everything about you, was that he could smell the hunger on me, the relentlessness, the uh, desire to succeed. And I think that's rare. I think most people have a certain level, a modicum of comfort, and they're not willing to let it go in front of him stood a, a 15-year-old kid who didn't care where his next meal was going to come from, who didn't care where he was going to sleep that night, who was focused singularly on making it no matter what it took.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, you didn't um, talk to it either. And I'm just intrigued to know if you're willing to share. But when, when you left your your home and left your parents was that a fractious move and creating a lot of tension between your parents or did they pat you on the back and wish you well and say good for you son
0: no of (laughs) course i just disappeared so i just left um but i'm sure that they were very torn up about it in those days but of course they couldn't have understood they couldn't Mm. have understood uh, what i was going through what I wanted to do. It was unreasonable what I wanted to do. And for them, being an immigrant family, coming from Iran, working every day of their lives, just thinking, hey, we just want a better life for our our family, a better life for ourselves, like so many immigrant families coming to this country, they had no concept of the risk that I was willing to take. In order to achieve what I wanted to do and that risk probably wouldn't have been okay with them. But later on, you know, we reestablished our relationship and and made good.
1: Yeah, I guess from their point of view that they've, they've had everything kind of taken away from them. And they're, they're, they're carving out a foothold and the last thing they want is to lose the thing that they've just fought for. So you're right, they wouldn't be able to understand the way you're thinking. Cause they're, they're, they're wanting to preserve it. Flip side is you taking those actions is then that thing that your mentor looks at and goes, yeah, this, this guy's going to do stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> look yeah. what he's done so far, even if it's not got the results yet, but there's the, 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 the raw drive is there, as you say. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's and, right. And was, was he um, involved in helping you with the, the chemical element? Cause again, in, you know, in, in terms of the, the, Experimental, uh, finding the drug. You talking with your girlfriend in the kitchen, pulling these things together, trying different stuff. Now, for for someone who's got no education and no background in that sort of area, I don't know how much he influenced. But where does that kind of chemical experimentation come from? (laughs) None. (laughs) None. No. Just a new drug. You know. (laughs) Yeah. No.
0: He. He. He was gone by then. Right. And it was my ability to influence people that allowed me to come up with that formula. It was a brilliant formula. And what I did was I read, I got books, I called the authors, I knocked on people's doors and sure 99 out of a hundred people told me to fuck off. But that one person said, yes, that one person said, come on in and have a cup of tea. And let me tell you how this works. And that's all I needed. That's the thing in life. People get so dissuaded by rejection, but What you don't see when you see somebody that's succeeded is you don't see their failures. You only see their successes. You look at somebody like Michael Jordan, you're like, man, he hits every basket. Yeah, you're not seeing the ones that he missed. You're not seeing his great failures. And similarly, I mean, you look at guys that are like, you know, uber successful with women. And you're like or approaching women and, you know, talking to them and you just see him sitting with like a a beautiful female and you're like, oh, my God, that was so easy for you. You know, for me, it's so hard. But it's like, no, he you know, a lot of the times with that, it's you don't know how many times he got rejected by women to come up to the one that worked. And, And, you know, maybe that's a poor example, but. You have to go out there and have discipline. You have to have stick You have to go out there and seek rejection. I teach my students now. I have a, a course where I teach people how to make money on the Amazon platform from all over the world. I've got people in the UK, people in the United States, people in Africa, people in Canada. And we show them how to come up with products and find a product, private label it, and sell it on the Amazon platform. Anybody that's interested, email me with the code TINGLE, and I will give you, it's normally 200 bucks, I will give you my one-hour crash course teaching you how to make money on Amazon for free if you use the code TINGLE. My email, I'm gonna share it if it's okay with you, Andrew. Darkzess at gmail.com. For you guys just listening, I'm going to spell it. D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com. Use the code TINGLE in the subject heading. And I will give you the $200 one hour course for free. Now, what I teach my students now, the people who come to me who are like, man, I wanna leave my fucking job. I wanna have freedom. I wanna travel. I wanna make this uh, recurring revenue, what we used to call mailbox money back in the day, where I don't have to sell my hours for money, is that you have to go out there and seek failure. You have to go out there and try to fail. Now, of course, We're not going to go out there and do stupid stuff so that we fail. We're going to do things intelligently, and we're going to hope to succeed. But we know that when we fail, those lessons help us improve. So most people get stopped before they even start because they get so myopic, and they're like, man, you know, the thing that I'm going to do is going to be so much better than other people's, and they just don't, as Seth Godin, the great marketing author, check out his books, uh, talks about is they don't ship. They don't ship. They get caught up in the cerebral uh, uh, paralysis, uh, uh, and they procrastinate, and they keep perfecting, perfection paralysis, and the product never comes out. What's better, and I talk about this in my book, Billion, is you want to ship as quickly as possible the best viable product and then allow the market to tell you how to fix it. Allow the market to tell you how to improve. It's the best way to go. It's the cheapest way to test a product. And that's what I did with Herbal Ecstasy. I made a product and I took it immediately to the market and I let the market tell me, oh, it's too strong. There are too many pills. Maybe we don't like goo filled balls. We prefer it if you actually put it in a capsule, all those kinds of things. And so, again, that email is darkzess, D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S, at gmail.com. Use code TINGLE. Uh, If you want to learn more about this stuff, my book, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult, check it out. Uh, It's available in the UK now, which is exciting, on Audible and uh, Amazon and also all over the world. So please check that out.
1: Thank you very much for that offer. That's very much appreciated. Um, Out of interest, do you you, um, narrate your own book? I do.
0: Everybody asks me that. And dude, I'll tell you, I am a master at delegation. I love using other people's hours to make me money. I fucking hate using my own hours. My wife knows this. Uh, She always jokes that I can move anything with two fingers, put that there, put this there, put that there, like pointing. Um, So I I love doing that. But um, I tried to get somebody to do it. And I hired a voice actor, real pro, fucking great guy. And then people listened to it and they were like, Everybody was asking me that question. I guess people want to hear the story from me. So I had to go through the pain, the terrible misfortune, Andrew, of gluing my arse. And I know you're British, so I'm going to say arse. Gluing my arse to a chair for three straight days of like eight hour, 10 hour days and recording. I think it was more like two weeks and recording this audiobook, which, by the way, if you ever I, I don't know if you have a book or if if anybody here is thinking of writing a book there's no better experience to experience your book than reading every single page out loud and then listening to it it is mind-blowing how different it is but yeah so i i i do narrate the uh, audiobook for anybody that's interested it's on audible called billion how i became king of the throw pill call and i am
1: um, plenty of books but not actually done any audio version yet but it's on it's on the list yeah yeah (laughs) my my wife is actually a voice artist but uh i I still want again like i i still want to do it myself because a different vibe comes through when it's your own stuff which you cannot translate into somebody somebody else because yeah it comes from within
0: yeah, delegation is super important, but there's some things you just can't fucking delegate. Which is why you want to delegate as much as you can, <laughs> yeah, so that so you can do the stuff you do want
1: to do. <laughs> so you can do the
0: stuff that you want to or have to do. There's some shit you just cannot delegate. That is one of those things that cannot be delegated.
1: So, um, sort of in that sort of space, because delegation will be part of this sort of thing. But again, you you uh, going back to your stories. You as you become sex- successful with the um, herlexacy. Uh, um you you talked quickly uh, about how it's expanded to this billion dollar industry again h- how did you learn to scale up to start working with people abroad to get to that size because you, you're two people in a kitchen at one point and then we're a billion dollar industry with forty staff etc cetera, etc cetera, and all over the world
0: yeah so you're gonna love this Uh, I write about it again in my book, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrupple Cult. So in those days, I didn't have very many rules, but I had one hard and fast rule. And I write about it again. I go into detail about it in the book, but it's called Suicide Margins. And my (laughs) philosophy was this. Money solves all problems. If you have enough money, anything can be solved. Somebody steals product throw money at it. Somebody sues you, throw money at it. Government doesn't like you, throw money at it. Don't have enough inventory, throw money at it. Have too much inventory, throw money at it, advertise. So my philosophy was that no matter what happened, as long as I was making unreasonable amounts of money and had crazy margins, remember 25 cents cost, I think at some point we got it down to like 23 cents cost, Retail for $20, cash all day, every day, as quickly as we could make it, we could sell it. We were doing better than printing money. So as long as the cash was coming in, I would solve all problems by throwing money at it. And that was it. That was my level of sophistication. I remember at some point, one of these big... um trading firms, one of these big uh, investment banks called me in and, uh, you know, it was one of those uh, uh, big, big uh, uh, offices, uh, like landing strip offices where you would walk in and you'd walk like five minutes before you hit dude's desk. And he had like the whiskey and the, you know, all that old school mad men stuff. And the guy was like, you know, he had all the, all the, you know, luxury foods and it was like out of a movie. And I'm like, what the fuck does this guy want with me? And you know, was there for like an hour, and then I went home. And I was like, uh, I went back to the office, and my secretary was like, "Well, how did it go with so and so of this like massive company?" And I was like, "I don't know. I think it was some asshole trying to sell me stocks." And I realized only later that guy wanted to take my company public. I had no reference points for like what that was, what that meant. I just flew by the seat of my pants, and I made stuff up. And there was an advantage to this: there was zero red tape. I had a thought. And I would execute. That was it. There was no committees. There was no board. There was no advisors. It was me. That was it. One guy running all the stuff. And people took advantage. I had hundreds of millions of dollars stolen from me. I had people cheating. I had people doing all kinds of stuff. I had a guy that would come in in the morning in the office to clean. We were like You know, Johnny is such a good guy, and that wasn't his name, but we were like, he's such a nice guy. He comes in early on his own time and cleans the office. Turns out he was taking boxes of pills, throwing them in the trash, and then his girlfriend, who was on roller skates, would come around the back with her little Walkman and roller skates. Nobody would think anything because it was a pretty girl in a bikini, and she would pick the trash bags up when nobody was looking. And hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of pills. And then she would be selling them in a little shop on the beach on the boardwalk. And that they had a they had a very lucrative business going that way. And these kinds of things happened all the time, because I was not educated in the way of the world, but I solved all the problems using these suicide margins. And we scaled because of the media, the press and the government, the government would come out and say, Hey, Uh, this stuff is terrible. It could kill you. And by the way, we never had anybody die. We never had a single injury, but that's what they would say. Now, what are people hearing when they hear the government saying this through the media? People are hearing this stuff might actually work because (laughs) the consumer isn't concerned about the danger. The danger adds a level of excitement for them. What they're concerned about is that they're going to throw their $20, 20 quid, as you would say, on this product, and then be in the middle of a party and have it not work. So when the government's saying this could be dangerous, people are saying, "Where the fuck can I sign up?" And the more and more they came out saying this could be dangerous, well, you got to be careful. And I'd be on there saying, "Well, has anybody been hurt yet?" And they said, "Well, no, not yet." But I said, "It could happen any minute." I said, "We've sold a billion dollars worth of this stuff. You think somebody could get hurt?" Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's bound to happen. It's bound to happen. The stuff is fun. Sales went through the roof. And the, and, and the more and more they did this, the more and more money we made. And it was interesting. I tell the story again in my book where I got called to a talk show. This guy, Montel Williams, one of the great talk shows of the 1990s. And they flew me out to New York. But before the show, I heard I had ears to the ground everywhere from a source that will go unnamed, that his plan was to destroy me on the air. A lot of these talk shows were like, uh, you know, very sensationalist, and they had to have a lot of action and turmoil. So his idea was to have somebody from the government, the drug enforcement agency, somebody big there and have me arrested on the air. But he soon learned that what I was doing was not illegal, which I think blew his mind, allegedly. All this is alleged, by the way, so nobody sues me. And he changed his philosophy to, hey, if he's not doing his illegal, we're going to have the FDA on there. We're going to have the, you know, these government agencies, and we're just going to really like dig deep into this kid and show everybody how bad he is. Well, all my attorneys, all my publicists, everybody working for me was telling me, don't do it. Do not do it. This is terrible for you. Bad publicity. And I thought about it, and I woke up, and they're like, where are you going? I'm like, getting on the plane to go to New York to do the show and nobody understood. What did I do? That night, I had t-shirts printed with our 800 number. Now, guys, this is pre-internet for all younger people watching. Again, we have to young explain, Andrew, because people don't understand how things work in the day. Before the internet, we had this thing called 800 numbers, and people would call, and you would give a credit card, and then we would ship stuff to you. This is before the internet, before eBay, before Amazon. So I printed an 800 number straight across my shirt, a picture of a butterfly and it said herbal ecstasy, get it now or something like that. And you can find these videos on YouTube. They're all all there if anybody doesn't believe the stories because the stories really are unbelievable. Then I had really pretty girls go into the audience who waited outside New York in a line to get into the studio, giving them free herbal ecstasy, free pills. And people were taking them in the line, getting high in line, and then we gave them T-shirts to wear. We told them, hey, we'll give you 50 bucks. We'll give you Morrible Ecstasy, whatever it is. When you get on, wear a sweater. And then when the camera pans to you, take your shirt off. Take your, uh, sorry, your sweater off so that people could see your shirt. Don't take your shirt off. That would be too much excitement for them. And uh, what happened is, and you can watch this. When I went on the air, he did exactly what I thought he would do. He had a mother of a, t- of a kid, a teenager that died from taking real drugs, allegedly. This kid had actual real drugs in his system, allegedly. And he had taken a product similar to mine, not my product, something similar to mine. And then he had the crying parent and looking at me with all her fury. And then he had uh, some low-level FDA guy that was on there telling him how unsafe we are and some vitamin guy telling him, these are the worst things ever. Don't take this guy's stuff but the phone started ringing because people would see the number on my shirt and they started ringing and ringing and ringing. And we made over a million dollars in profit from that one airing as this guy was just digging into me as hard as he could. And those were the kinds of things we did in those days. We took people's energy and we turned it into them. And that's why it it was a very exciting time. And we grew like that. We grew by shows like that. We took all this negativity that was coming our way and we turned it into something
1: positive and it worked really well. Yeah, fabulous. And do you come interested about the, the follow on businesses that you've done as well, Don't need do, but but I'm guessing you've used similar tactics in like with the, uh, the vaping side of the business that you're talking about, because obviously there's going to be some controversy around that. Um, but also what, what, when you when you left the herbal ecstasy business sold out, what what made you think about where you wanted to go next, what you wanted to do next, which became vaping and then became Amazon? What was your
0: Yeah. So one thing you should know about me, Andrew is that I'm really fucking bad at most things. I mean, completely. I mean, probably mentally disabled at most things. I definitely have a learning disability. I definitely suck at most things. Sometimes I look at myself and I'm like, fuck, dude, how do you like leave the door? Like, how do you like, how do you exist? How do you function? Day to day. Like, I, I am, you know, probably at a 13 year old level. My eight year old, I have an eight year old kid. He explains most things to me. He shows me how to do most things. I mean, he made dinner last night and I was like, oh, that's how you make butter. Like, he, he knows how to do shit. I don't know how to do shit. I'm not good with that stuff. I do have one or two superpowers. One of them is being able to spot trends, the second is being able to influence people. Those are two things that I'm great at. And I teach both of those. They're both very learnable. But I learned after ecstasy, I was looking at, I was like, man, let me, you know, I'm, I'm bored. Let me try to solve a bigger problem. Uh, and that problem was of smoking. You look around for thousands of years, people have been burning plants to get a little bit of their active element, the medicine, but creating smoke, tar, carbon monoxide, very primitive way of, of inhaling a substance. But I looked closer at it and I thought, man, this is just a drug delivery system that's primitive. Why haven't we improved it? Well, it's because all of the indicators for its benefits are uh, leading indicators and all all the disadvantages of it are lagging. You don't find out if smoke hurts you until 30 years later, 20 years later in some cases. Of course, people have some side effects from it right away. So I thought, man, let me see if I could solve this. What if you could heat the plants up just to the point where you would get the medicine, but not to the point where it burns, creating the carcinogenic, meaning cancer-causing elements, smoke, tar, and carbon monoxide. And so I started researching. I started looking at the patents. I noticed that all the big tobacco companies and pharma companies had been buying up any technology that purported to do this kind of thing for years. They did not want this out, allegedly. So I thought to myself, man, Let me see. uh, There was one patent out there that hadn't been perfected. I went out and I bought it immediately from the scientists who developed it. And I started developing and building and inventing this technology to make it real. And the first one was the size of a ketchup bottle. Now we're looking at these tiny little cigarettes. And the next one was a little smaller. And finally, we got it to the size of a cigar and then finally got to the point where it is today. And look, I am not an advocate of smoking anything. I don't smoke anything and certainly not an advocate of vaping. I recommend people don't do it. I don't think it's a good thing uh, in general. But at the time when we invented and developed the technology, it was a great harm reduction measure. And I think still to this day, digital vaporization as, as the way that I invented it um, really does hold promise because you're not having all the stuff that all the ingredients that are in the e-cigs and vapes that we have now. We didn't have any ingredients except the plants back in the day when when I developed it. So I went from there to that company went public. I exited just before and I decided, hey, you know, I'm going to go into doing something more interesting. I want to take a look at developing a brain supplement. So I invented this brain supplement called Accelerol, a nootropic. Fantastic. It's on Amazon if anybody wants to check it out. It's Accelerol Focus Plus, Focus Plus Accelerol. And it was one of the best ones, but it was expensive. It was like $120 a month. Now it's only like 30 or 40 bucks, but back then it was like 120 bucks. And I thought, where am I going to sell it? And this was in the early days where you could get a hold of Jeff Bezos. You could email him, you would respond to his emails. Yeah, what a legend. I mean, he would really take a personal interest in his company. We heard through the grapevine that Bezos was opening up his platform, Amazon, to third party sellers, people like you and me, to be able to sell product directly on there. I thought, you know what? Let me give it a shot. It took all of 15 minutes to start a seller account and sell the product on Amazon. Woke up the next day to hundreds of thousands of dollars in orders. And I thought, maybe this guy isn't just a Silicon Valley nerd. Let me learn more about this Bezos. And the more I read up on him, I realized that this was a guy who was a disruptor. This was a guy who wasn't in there to play the usual game. He was taking cheap money from Wall Street and putting it into Silicon Valley, and not just building a bookstore, as people thought, but building a disruptor, the same way Piggly Wiggly was a disruptor in uh, commerce. If you guys don't know the story of Piggly Wiggly killed the general store, this guy came out and basically was like, look, I've got a few innovations. We're like, what is it? What are you going to do? He's like, back in those days, remember, people will go into a general store, there would be one man in there. He'd be like, What would you like? You'd be like, I want a loaf of bread. I want, you know, some shampoo and you know, some beer. And he would put it in a bag. He'd say, It's this much, and he'd hand it to you and you'd leave. You'd have no choice in brands. There would be no competition. What he gave you is what you got. The price was what it was. Well, piggly wiggly comes out. This guy is gonna revolutionize the world. What's he do? I'm gonna introduce this new thing. What's it called? A shelf with an aisle. What? Yeah, people are going to be able to come by, pick out a product, maybe have a choice of two or three, and then bring it to us. What's that thing? That's called a fucking register. We're going to ring them out on that. And then what is that thing with the wheels? Oh, that. That's my greatest invention so far. It's a shopping cart. (laughs) And when this came out, it was revolutionary. And the guy at the general store is sitting there with his chin in his palm. Staring out the window at the line around the block of people waiting to get into the Piggly Wiggly and his store being empty. Because now I've got a choice of two beers and they got to compete with each other for my business. Now I can walk around and buy nothing at all or walk around and buy more of what I need. And he revolutionized the industry of commerce.
1: Wow.
0: That's Jeff Bezos he was revolutionizing how things are bought. And it's still day one of Amazon. So I decided to spend the rest of my time in those days, perfecting how to become a master at Amazon, how to sell on Amazon, how do you find products that people want? How do you instead of creating products and rushing out there frantically finding a market for it? How do you Find the market, spy the market, and then just give it what it needs. How do you become a storyteller? How do you create conversions on the Amazon platform? And that's what I did. I learned how to do that. I perfected that. And now I teach people how to do it through my Amazon course. Reach out, guys. Code is Tingle if you want to get the course for free. Darkzess at gmail.com. D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com.
1: Brilliant. and, And you said... I've had enough of the vaping. I want to do something more interesting. I want to do something that excites me. And you talk, and then moved into the Amazon. So what is it about the Amazon mastery and the marketplace that is exciting for you? That's interesting.
0: I think Amazon is a great equalizer. Back in the day, you had what Seth Godin calls disruption marketing. You're watching a football game. They bang on your door. Knock, 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 knock. You want a Coke? Like, no, no, I'm good. Okay. Two minutes later, hey, want a Coke? Two minutes later, hey, how about now? How about now? You're like, all right, give me the fucking Coke. That changed with the internet. That changed with permission marketing. People don't believe the corporations anymore. What do people believe? They believe me in you. People believe social proof. People believe in Joey across the street that's just like me. They believe in the kid next door that says, you know what? I drank the soda. And it was delicious, so cold, so refreshing. They don't believe the company telling them that stuff anymore. And Amazon <clears throat> enabled the little guy like me, like you, like Joey across the street to come up with his own product and using the elements of influence, of social proof, reviews, ratings, of using. The ability, the, the innate ability that most people have that they don't know how to have, that we teach them to bring out of telling stories to be able to compete with these massive disruption marketing companies and to create not only a living, but to thrive, to create financial independence by creating products and selling them on this platform. Now you can create a product and compete. This is unheard of in the history of humanity that an individual can create a little product and put it out in very short order with little or no money and make as much money on that platform as these mega corporations with millions and billions of dollars. That's exciting to me.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and look, I've made my money over my lifetime. I'm Set. I've got my houses, my cars, you know, my family's good. We travel all over the place. I'm very fortunate to to be in a position where I don't have to work. But my goal now is to empower people. I get a kick. What makes me tingle is seeing somebody take my course, seeing somebody start an Amazon business. And in a year, maybe two years time, walk in, look at their boss and give them the middle finger and say, fuck off, man, I'm free fuck off. I don't have to sell my hours anymore. Fuck off. I'm going traveling to Saint-Tropez with my family. And while we're on that beach sipping that fucking pina colada, I'm making money because somebody is buying what I'm selling on Amazon. And while I'm at it, I'm bringing great value to the world. I'm putting a dent in the universe by creating better products, telling better story, and really providing a service to the world. That excites me.
1: Yeah, and it it makes sense because you say your superpowers spotting the trends, being an influencer, which is is ever since you were that teenager spotting that initial thing, that's always been your thing, as you say. Um, But now you're able to use it in this way to essentially go back and help all those other 14, 15-year-olds that you were back then, and you can become the mentor to them as your mentor was to you and give them that handout of, poverty the trap whatever it is and give them the the freedom of life that you managed to fight get for yourself yeah which uh that's pretty cool ordinary at this point as you've already sort of uh i I would ask you the key question you've already answered it (laughs) you know what makes your bits tingle? you even filtered it in so i don't need to ask you that question because you've already dealt with it sort of thing so um i think uh Thank you for that. I, I think, you know, there's some, some fast, fantastic stuff in there. Some gr- great points. Um, you know, as you said, keep, keep stuff simple. Think, do. Uh, I, I, I love that as a concept that get, don't worry about the red tape when you're in charge, you just h- have a thought, go and do it and then work out how to <laughs> worry about the repercussions later in many ways. Um, and again, thank you for all your offers in terms of the the, the, the Tingle code to be able to get your uh, one-hour crash course for free is most generous. So very much appreciate that. And of course, I will put all the stuff in the show notes. Um, are there any final things you like, to? as, as I'm not able to give you the, 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 the key questions you've already dealt with, is there any sort of final sort of sign-off or key points you want to get across to people as the show today? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think, you know, guys, you got to think foundationally. And we all have to realize that the world has changed and shifted, especially since COVID, since the COVID-19 pandemic. As we're recording, we're at the end of it. Hopefully, this Omicron wave will end COVID and we'll be free. I think we're all hoping for that. And I think it's a great time, especially now. When people are at home and working from home, and we're realizing the efficiency and power from working from home, take some time and start an e commerce business. Take some time and create that piece of real estate for yourself, for your family, so that you can build financial freedom. It's one step, it's not the only step. I teach people you need to have cash flow positive real estate. You need to have investments in the market where you're, you're gaining and in compounding interest. You need to have a way to give yourself and your family security. It could be your job, whatever it is. But eventually, get out of the fucking trap of selling your hours. You don't want to become that guy where you sell your hours day after day, and you, know, you go to sleep, and you wake up, and every day is fucking Groundhog's Day until one day you wake up, and you look, and you go, what's it all fucking for? How did I get here? you want to have freedom. You want to have adventure. You want to be able to follow your fascination, to have the financial freedom to do the things that you love in life. Whatever the fuck it is, nobody, nobody should be a slave to their hours. And if I can help you do that, if I can help you gain that freedom... Reach out to me. That's my direct email, by the way, that I give out to everybody. I get to email zero every day, which means you're guaranteed to get a reply from me. Reach out, darkzess at gmail.com, D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com. If you want to check out my larger course, it's fbacellercourse.com. That's fulfillment by Amazon Sellercourse.com. We also have a podcast called Hack and Grow Rich. We're going to be getting close to 100,000 subscribers if YouTube doesn't take some of them down. So make sure to check that out. It's Hack and Grow Rich, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever podcasts are found. And uh, yeah, reach reach out, check out the book, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult, if my story inspired you and you'd like to learn more about how I did it. And Andrew, I'm, I'm honored and, and humbled to be on your show. I really appreciate it.
1: Uh, it's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, Shine. Thank you so much for uh, a great story. Um, a story almost under-devalues it, but it, <laughs> you know, but um, some really interesting, some great learning points. And, and, uh, and again, you know, tap into that book, Billion, um, worth having a look at that just to get into some more detail of some of the stuff because you've only only really had a chance to sort of skim over some of the key points. There's going to be so much more richness in there, which uh, which is going to be massive uh, of use for everybody. So um, yeah, big thank you for coming on. Really appreciate your time and um, wish you all the best for the coming year.
0: Appreciate it, buddy. Have a great day.
1: Brilliant. Thank you.